We get to hear from uh, Jeff Payne this morning, and uh, if you don't know Jeff, he played linebacker at Texas uh, for the Fighting Texas Aggies, and uh, he also went on and was uh, drafted in the NFL, played for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, afterwards, he went to seminary and uh, was our college pastor at Grace. Uh, he taught Brian Fisher everything he knows, and... Uh, <laughs> He uh, had an amazing ministry, and then he felt God leading him into the business world. And he is now a financial advisor, financial planner. There's a lot of awesome things I could say about Jeff, but one of the things... uh, Where are you, Jeff? I'm looking around for you. There you are. One of the things I respect about you the most, Jeff, is... uh, your family. Your, uh, he's, he will be, have been married 25 years this summer to Beth. Uh, they have four kids. Jeff's the real deal. He's uh, an honest, genuine man who loves the Lord. He's passionate. He's the chaplain of the uh, Texas A&M football team. And uh, Jeff, it's a real privilege to have you. Would you come up here and share with us? I don't need to tell you guys what a privilege it is to have heard from James this morning. And uh, I think I can speak for probably half the guys in here. Our stories are very similar, aren't they? Psalm 51, I think James just exactly describes his story. David prays, and I think Brad may have talked about this last night, created me a clean heart, O God, and Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from, do not take the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. That's, um, what a privilege. Well, when Brad called me yesterday and said that it didn't look like Steve Farrar was going to make it in, and he asked if I could step in, I felt a little bit like I did when I was behind Mark Lewis, an All-American tight end, and I was a backup. You know, I was ready to be a backup. And he went down, like, in the first series of the, of the first game in 1982, and all of a sudden, I'm a starter. So, you know... Uh, Steve Farrar, obviously, uh, by God's grace, is, is an All-American. He's, God's used him mightily. He's talking to Joe Orsack about some of the material he's written. And hopefully he'll be here this afternoon, okay? Uh, but if not, um, it's my privilege, and it is my privilege, to get a chance to, to be with you all a few sessions. I, I heard last night was just a powerful night, and I told Brad, let's just keep that duo going, Bill Purcell praying and you talking so, you know, if I start getting the fumbles, we might just have, you know, bring Brad back up and, and other guys uh, to share. But what a rich time, what a privilege it is to be together. There's a song out right now that says, uh, and you guys, young guys can help me, you know, I don't know about holy or what it is to be holy. She sent a beautiful song and it just beautifully expresses that how other God is. Brian did a phenomenal job a couple of weeks ago talking about holiness and kind of bringing it down so that we can realize, hey, this is, this is really what God wants of our lives. William Barclay, is a, he's great with words. He talks about hagiazin, I don't pronounce the Hebrew right, but it means not only to be set apart for some special office and task, 
but also means to equip a man with the qualities of mind and heart and character which are necessary for that task. Very, very well said. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different or distinct from the world, she invariably then attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. So, you know, I'm not here to pretend to know a whole lot about holy. I I know it means set apart, sanctified, some of the, the words... But it seems crystal clear in Scripture that that's something that the Lord wants men to take very seriously, especially as we, as we lead the charge, as we're t- talking about this weekend. And I, I came across a verse in one of the Timothy letters. It basically says, men lifting up holy hands. And, you know, uh, I, I lift my hands up every now and then in church. Uh, it's funny how we don't, we don't think twice about doing this in a football game, do we? You know, and I don't know that it's necessarily for a touchdown. It's just we just put our hands up. I'm not sure what it means other than it's a, it's a form of expression. But it means something. We're going to, this weekend, going to try to, if Steve doesn't make it, we're going to try to walk through what holiness looks like from some of the verses that I think talk about. And, and first, this morning... I'd like to talk about a man's holy response to life's derailing trials. A man's holy response to life's derailing trials. This evening, if Steve doesn't make it, we want to talk about a man's holy business of loving his wife. A man's holy business. Okay? Of loving his wife. And then tomorrow morning, I want to suggest a man's holy keys to Super Bowl living. A man's holy keys. You know, all the writers talk about the keys for the Packers and the keys for, for the, for the uh, who are they playing, Bill? I drew a blank. <laughs> Bill's the wrong guy to ask. They're uh, all talking about the keys to how to win. Guys, there's some keys some holy keys for us to make place. So that's where we're going to go uh, by God's grace. But, you know, it's a retreat. You never know how God may lead. Uh, it's, always a, it's always a powerful time. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel. I'll give you a few minutes to find it. 2 Samuel in chapter 4. And I'm just going to read one verse to begin. Now Jonathan, in verse 4, Saul's son had crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Father, you're... Your word is living and active and and powerful to change the Jameses of the world and the Jameses in this room. And I'm thankful that you changed myself. And I thank you for your grace and for your word. And we just trust you 
to, to speak to us. I would ask that you would speak to me in a fresh way through a passage I've looked at over and over, but, but it would come to life once again and be fresh for my life and the life of some of my brothers uh, here today. Lord, we just look for you to bring us near to yourself and, and work in us in a lasting 366 days and counting uh, way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm passing some boots around. Uh, who, who knows who can identify those boots? Some of you core guys probably. Anybody recognize those? Paratrooper? Uh, you know what? I don't even know. Uh, they're going to get to the guy. He's going to give us some detail on it for military science. My dad wore those boots over in the Eastern European th- uh, Theater in World War II. And my dad, like you guys have heard, Band of Brothers and so forth, he's one of those guys. It's, it's so true. He's just a guy. He's not a hero. He, he's just a kid in Clinton, Iowa. And he goes to the Citadel. And next thing you know, he's in training and firing mortars and being fired upon. And uh, it wasn't until that 50, you remember the anniversary when all the shows came out about the, uh, about the war? And, and he started talking all these years. My dad was like 40 when I was born, so it was a little bit like being raised by a grandfather. For some of your older dads, don't take that personally. But it was, you know, as he's a little older. And I, I, I knew he was something about the war, but I hadn't heard anything. He never talked about it, not once. And finally, he started to tell me some stories, and I pulled the boots out, and I said, Dad, tell me about these boots and, you know, where you wore them. And he, he started to to tell me about some times when he was standing in those boots in a farmhouse and a guy was right in front of him standing by a window and a mortar went off right outside the window and literally my dad verbalized to me that he saw a man lose his head. (laughs) My dad said that could have been me. And he talked about how they walked around in the forest for hours just so their feet wouldn't freeze. But they were so tired, but if they slept, their feet would freeze. And you know, all through that, apparently my dad just got hardened and bitter and angry and uh, he was critical until he, he began to reflect a little bit more about those boots. He also remembered that he was in his boots and he was going down to a city to check on some supplies along a farm road. And he heard the shell that had his name on it. Apparently it's unmistakable. And he, that was it. He, he, he fired mortars. He knew what mortars did. And... Phew, It was a duck. My dad said, we fired 500 rounds, and I don't remember a dud. They were the same equipment. That shell had my name on it. Apparently, God had a life for me. And that remembrance, along with a heart condition, my dad's 65-something years old, David. 65. 
understood what it meant to trust in Christ. Not long after that, is Don Campbell here? Don had the idea to uh, have my dad share. My dad, he hardly spoke in private, much less in a group. And we had a, where's Don? We had a banquet or something. We honored the veterans. Don had a great idea. And he asked my dad. I said, Don, I don't know. Remember that, Don? I said, I don't know. I'll talk to him. And uh, shockingly, my dad agreed. And we talked about and I'm going to tell you something. I'll never forget that night. He shared his story. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. I still have people come up and say they were there, and they figured that they, they just felt like that was a special moment to hear somebody that fought in World War II, and, and God had used it to bring him to a place of brokenness. Uh, you know, brokenness is uh, uh, really a, a study in itself, but I just, you don't need to turn, but I just want to relate what, what the psalmist records, David, in, in Psalm 34, I believe, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if you've been broken, you know exactly. You don't need any Hebrew, you don't need any explanation. You know exactly what that passage means. On the other hand, if you haven't been broken, quite honestly, you're wondering what that passage is saying. It's okay. Some of the college guys here, I was sitting in this room like this, doing retreats and things, and I read a verse like that, and I honestly, it, it really didn't mean a lot. I was a believer. I want us to look at a story together this morning that I think portrays a picture, a, a portrait, if you will, a, a paradigm for how God brings us to a place of brokenness. James, I loved his testimony. I, I'd, I'd beg to differ in, in one count, and that is, you didn't break yourself, God broke you. He used sin, as he has in my life and others in this room, to bring you to a place of brokenness. That's His grace. But I remember uh, when I was in college, Dennis Fisher, Brian's dad, he's the one that taught Brian everything he knows, by the way. Let's give credit where credit's due. (laughs) Dennis here? Where's Dennis? Dennis uh, talked to the college group one Sunday, and I'll never forget, he helped bring the Old Testament to life for me. There's a passage in Romans chapter Chapter 15 and 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And Dennis said the Old Testament is the storybook of the New Testament. And when he said that through this verse, the Old Testament began to come to life. Kind of like the night at the museum, you know, all those characters come to life. And that's what happens as you read through. But I'd never heard about this story about Mephibosheth until one time I was reading through the Old Testament. And I was just going through Second Samuel chapter 4 and I read this very sad passage and a story of what happened to a young boy probably four or five years old. 
And in fact, at that time, one of my sons was right about that same age. And so I began to empathize with the story, the, the tragedy of, of this young boy who, in the, the haste of his nurse, you know, in that day when, the, when a kingdom changed hands, the, the family of the former regime was, their lives were threatened, right? I mean, they, they ran for their lives. Many of them were ostracized or killed tortured sometimes, obviously a brutal, brutal society. Uh, you know, in our day, I remember when Coach Francione came in here, word has it that he, he thought about replacing the training staff as well as the coaching staff. So you want a clean house, you want all the old regime out. And that's what her fear was, that little Mephibosheth's life was threatened. So we don't know exactly what happened, but it, the story suggests that perhaps she picked him up and began to try to get him away. And in her haste, she must have dropped him. And the text says, and he was lame in both feet. You know, we have crippling events in our lives, don't we? And and it's interesting, this passage says, and it happened. That's one of those little phrases that I underline. I, I, you know, and it happened. What happens in our lives? You know, maybe... Like Mephibosheth, there's a birth defect or a physical disability. Um, All of us see some of our brothers and sisters who worship with us every week, who have to be wheeled in. But oftentimes it's maybe a a family accident or tragedy or or a broken relationship of some kind or an emotional instability or uh, an untimely death. Joe lost his dad as a young boy. That's, that's an and it happened kind of event. This time last year, this very weekend, I'll never forget, I was sitting right back there and somebody came in and told me that my good friend Matt Moore's son was tragically killed on a four-wheeler. Uh, we can go on. Unrealized dreams in this economy, financial hardships and setbacks and failures destructive habits maybe it's a chemical dependence or alcohol or drugs of some kind or or as james shared pornography very similar to him at 10 years old somebody gave my dad a magazine thought it'd be a funny 50th anniversary a 50th birthday present you know keep you young and all that kind of stuff well they left it out on the coffee table 10 years old very similar couple of decades very similar. But you know, the story about Mephibosheth is so sad. And so as I'm reading through, I'm, I'm anxious to see what's going to play out here. God inspires his word. Why would he put this in here, this passing comment? And then I can't find anything in the rest of the chapter about what happens to Mephibosheth. Well, the first takeaway is be ready for personal trials because they're, they're going to happen. James 1 says, what does it say? Count it all joy if you might encounter trials. When. No, it's when. It, it's, a, it's a certainty. You're either in the middle of a trial, just coming out of one, or about to hit one. That's kind of the way God designed it, and he uses them. Maybe someday we'll... That'll be part of our worship to figure out how he used 
Four-wheeler accidents with 10-year-olds? I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. But but the second takeaway from this story is, uh, I find, be patient in the waiting period because it's necessary. You know, again, this is a this is a, a tragic event in the life of a five year old. Remember, you couldn't just run him to ER, right, David? You couldn't take him to the doctor and they could X-ray it. Yeah, it's broken here and here. We can set it. Hey, it may not be perfect, but hey, he'll walk. Uh, <laughs> you know, Mephibosheth isn't wondering how fast he can run the forty. He's not going to run the forty at all. And as you read the the, the story and you go on. There's nothing said, and I, I, I remember just looking for the next thing about Mephibosheth, chapter 5, and 6, and 7, and 8. Nothing. And I'm just thinking about my son Nathan, and I'd want God to say something. You know, we don't know for sure, but little Mephibosheth, just as a five-year-old, would barely, probably would remember a few things his daddy taught him. And just maybe, just maybe, his dad told him about the relationship that he and David had, the covenant. Somebody talked about a co- the covenant relationship that they had, and they promised to take care of each other's families. Maybe, maybe Mephibosheth wondered if King David might remember that relationship and somehow be kind, because everything would have told him, all his circumstances, all the people around him would have said, you need to stay away from any of David's men because it'll mean your head. You know, about all you can say so far is all you can do is wait. But you guys will remember uh, one of the great passages out of Isaiah that I can't wait till we get there, but in Isaiah's great prophecy in chapter 40 and verse 31, yet those who what? Wait for the Lord <laughs> will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We don't have time, but that wait, that word has the idea. It's a passive activity. It's It's a wrapping together as you wait on, as you trust in, as you long for. And you know, some of us in this room, even this morning, are waiting on how God's going to play out something that happened in our lives. Well, finally, the third takeaway here from this story for me is is be looking for the good outcome because it is unimaginable. You know, the great promise in Romans eight twenty eight, God causes what? All things to work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things here means all things, including our sin. He can use to draw us to himself in brokenness. As we continue reading the story of Mephibosheth and we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find David sort of is established now in his new reign, and he seems to be reflecting on 
all that God's done. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it. But it's, it's sort of like one of those moments where God has blessed him and he's, he's just grateful and he's wondering. And in his reflection, he, he says, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? For Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was that friend that sticks closer than a brother for David. So how can he make good on that covenant? How can he be gracious to anyone in Jonathan's household? You know, I don't know a whole lot about what theologians call typology, but it's pretty clear to me that if there is any types in the Old Testament, and there are many, David here is a type of Christ. Pictures the way God, because of for Christ's sake, looks for people to be kind to. It's the kindness of God, what? That leads us to repentance. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I just want us for a moment here to uh, reflect upon the ways that David here portrays this gracious pursuing love of God in the life of Mephibosheth. If you read through this story, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, verse 6, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. Remember, everything in his world is telling him, this means your head, or at best, continued poverty and slavery, at best. But you see here, David intentionally sought him. Look at the way the, in verse 2, you can, you can see here, uh, verse 3, Is there not anyone in the house of Saul? And Ziba said, There is a, still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in both feet. In other words, he doesn't bring anything to the king's table. He, he, he doesn't have much to offer. He won't be a warrior. He won't even be a farmer. He can't walk. You, you, don't, you don't want this guy on your staff. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said, behold, he is in the house of Makar in Lodabar. And the king sent and brought him from the house. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, fell and prostrated himself. And he said, here is your servant. Notice how David not only intentionally sought him, but he took his fears away. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, what? Do not fear. Did you realize that the most repeated words or phrase from the life of our Lord is basically, be not afraid, do not fear, fear not. Why? Because when we come into presence of the holy, we're afraid, right? We're undone, as Isaiah says. And yet in grace, he says, fear not. And then thirdly, he graciously provides for his needs. Look at at verses 9 and 10. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given your master's grandson. And you and your sons and servants shall Cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food, providing resources beyond what he could have imagined. 
He's going to be able to till the fields by telling, you know, the guys, oh, yeah, go get the back 40 today, guys. (laughs) He's gracing him with what he would ever be able to do on his own. And then finally, he wanted intimacy with Mephibosheth. You know, our pastors teach us how to study the Bible so well. And one thing they say is that when the text Repeat something, you know, once, maybe twice. You take note of it. Watch. Verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, down at the bottom of the verse, and you shall eat at my table regularly. I'm sure Mephibosheth, I didn't just hear that. No, he must have been talking to, you know, somebody else. Verse 10. And your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now he tells somebody else to make sure that David, I mean that Mephibosheth gets the message. And then again, verse 11. So guess what? Mephibosheth, what? Ate ate at David's table. As how? As one of the king's sons. Whoa. And if that isn't enough, (laughs) one more time, guys. See, we, we need to be reminded of God's grace over and over and over and over again. Verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. And don't forget, he was lame in both feet. You know, most of you know, remember Gene Stallings, a former A&M and Dallas Cowboys, Alabama coach, uh, Brad mentioned I played for the Chiefs. I was also with the Redskins and the Cardinals. You know, ideas to stay on one team for eight years. I was on three and five. But I had a chance to be around the coach who, as some of you may know, had a Down syndrome boy. Told his wife, Ruth Ann, that the day he was John, uh, John Mark was born, said, this is the worst day of our life. You know what he said? Years later, said Ruth Ann, you know, the day John Mark was born was the best day of our lives. Coach loved John Mark. You know, I was on IR when I was with the Cardinals, and so I couldn't practice. But John Mark was always at practice. And I would love, you know, he was like uh, like an eight-year-old or so, you know, and we'd throw the ball back and forth, and he'd catch it, you know, and throw it back to me and I'd catch it. We just had a great time. And I remember, I'll never forget, of all the guys a part of that team, Neil Omax, Stump Mitchell, Al Noga, Cedric Mack, some of these names you guys might remember hearing, there wasn't one guy who was more confident and happy and content Not because he could play football, but because he was a son. Just because he was a son. You guys realize that if we've put faith in Christ, we've got an invitation to sit at the table. Remember Revelation 3. Some of you guys are already there. Behold... I stand at the door and knock. 
What does it say? Somebody help me finish. If anyone opens a door, hears my voice, opens a door, what? I will come in and what? Dine. Intimacy. That's what, that's what Jesus wants. James said it as soon as we love Jesus Christ above all else, then all else fades. You know, there's a, there's a great, great promise as we close in Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8, just one of those, you know, you wear it out chapters. You might turn there as we, as we finish. But I read years ago of a northeastern, very wealthy family, but tragic story with a beautiful ending. This very wealthy man and his wife were unable for the longest time to have a child, and they finally conceived and gave birth to a, a Down syndrome child. And, of course, John Mark lived till he was 48, I think. Most Down syndrome, I don't think, lived that long. And this young man lived, I think, into his early 20s or so. And the couple loved him. That's all they wanted for years, and they lost their son. And literally, out of sadness... First the mom and then the father died in their sadness over losing their son. Well, of course, wealthy people from all over the Northeast came for the auction, the estate, you know, thinking they could, you know, they're just uh, just wealthy. And they're all gone, so we're going to be able to get some deals. (laughs) And, of course, the auction starts and... To the surprise of everyone there, the first item for bid is a picture of this uh, Down syndrome boy when he was a teenager, I guess. And the auctioneer, as they do, you know, uh, do I have, you know, 10? Uh, do I hear 10? Do I hear 15? Uh, and everybody's just waiting, you know, what's with the picture? Let's get on. There's land and there's furniture and there's just. All kinds of stuff. And finally, uh, the auctioneer just stood there and waited. Finally, a young lady uh, or a middle-aged woman up on the front row said, I, I don't have any money, but if, if nobody wants the picture, I would love to have the picture. I love the boy. I took care of him since he was born. He was like my own. And the auctioneer walked over with a picture And he stood next to the the woman, and on the back he read a note that was written by the grieving father. To the person who thinks enough of my son to take his picture to that one, I hereby will my entire inheritance. Auction closed. Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And go to Ephesians and just read about the riches that are yours in Jesus Christ. 
Father, we thank you for being with us this morning. We thank you for tucking away these stories that by your spirit come to life and we can enter in and we can realize, you know what, we're a lot like Mephibosheth. I just ask that you would speak to us as I trust you already have begun this weekend. As we reflect upon your word and the testimony, the beautiful and powerful testimony that James has shared, that we would be receptive to what you'd have to say. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.